Great to see you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if it's your very first time, I too want to welcome you, and I uh, just hope that God meets you here in a powerful way. We're going to go into our time of teaching, and so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet that we use every week for our time. So I encourage you to take that out, and uh, then we'll be able to follow along. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just thankful for what you're doing here this weekend and how you're meeting us every service in just a powerful way. As we talk about metamorphosis, we talk about transformation, we talk about the role that humility plays as foundational for our life of growth and change and transformation and freedom. And so we pray, God, that you would come today in this final service and just meet us in a very special way, that we'd sense the presence of your Holy Spirit, his leadership, his guidance, his word in our life. You'd speak powerfully through your words from from your word to our hearts, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today in the fall of the year, and uh, he's traveling with his team and trying to keep a low profile. And uh, this is not easy to do because he's become very famous or infamous, depending on how, you're, how you see him. And... Uh, but he's, he's recently shared some things with his team, that they're heading into a new era, uh, a new time of danger. And though he's been very straightforward, he's been very blunt, uh, he's told them exactly what he thinks is coming, that um, the reality is they don't really want to hear it. Uh, they, don't, uh, they don't really ex- understand the full implications of what he said. And frankly, they don't even want to ask him questions to understand better. And so uh, they're continuing on their journey. They've been away from home base for quite a ways now. But uh, as they're traveling, trying to keep a low profile, say under the radar, they're now approaching their home base. But the closer they get, the more the conflict he can sense rising within them and beginning to beginning to spread out. In fact, he's, he's heard them have an argument as they were kind of pulling in to, uh, to their home base. And so he decides it's time for a team meeting. He needs to address this. He needs to bring it out in the open. He needs to move toward it. And so as we, we, we look into this, this room where they're meeting, they're all gathered up, they're ready to start, and he's ready to launch this, uh, this meeting to confront this conflict that's brewing in their midst. Well, today, we are continuing this journey that we've been in the last couple of weeks, uh, a new series called Metamorphosis Transformed by Truth. And for those of you who are brand new, uh, this, this series, I like to compare it to the third season in an ongoing drama, uh, like a longer drama. We're calling that drama Metamorphosis. And, um, and so this whole longer series is based on a study of one of the key letters of, of what we call our New Testament. It's a letter from one of the leaders of the early church. His name was Paul, or if you're brand new at this, the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and he's writing to a group of Jesus followers in the southern tip of what is modern day uh, Greece into a major metropolitan city, one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. The city is called Corinth. And so we, we, we describe this letter as Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth or to the Corinthians. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, what we've learned is that a new crisis has risen up in Corinth where some new teachers have come in. They're big, they're bold, they're brash, they're self-confident, they're self-promoting, and they're bringing a different message. And they're bringing a message of what Paul calls a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. And Paul is a long ways away 
And on top of bringing this new message and promoting themselves, they're trying to undercut his authority and tear him down because their goal is to take over the church. And so Paul, being so far away, is not sure exactly what to do. So he begins to kind of wade into some uncharted waters, do some things he would normally, normally never do. He begins to kind of take off his gloves and begin to compare his credentials, his calling, his gifts with theirs in the hopes of kind of keeping this church from going over the waterfall. But he feels ridiculous doing this because, as we'll see, this is not how Jesus would call us normally to lead, to self-promote, to boast, to brag. But he feels like because of the danger they're in, this is all he can do to try to keep them out of harm's way. And so we're entering into a section of the letter today that scholars actually call the fool's speech. Because Paul, as he, as he enters in, he says, I'm going to be acting like a fool in this section of the letter. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Metamorphosis, the Fool's Speech. And we're picking it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up, turn it on, and let's see what happens. So in 11.16... Paul says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. So we're entering this section that we call the fool's speech. Notice he starts by, I repeat. And that goes back to chapter 11, verse 1. We saw last week, if you look back there quick, when he starts this whole section where he's going to begin to boast, he says, I hope you'll put up with me with a little foolishness. So now in the middle of the chapter, he comes back to that, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. He says, but if you do, and I'm sure some there in Corinth did see him as a fool, then tolerate me just as you would a fool. I mean, you're actually pretty good at this. You're tolerating all these, these other leaders so that I may do a little boasting. Right? So in this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would. In the Greek, it literally says, I'm not talking according to the Lord. I'm not speaking according to the Lord. Notice, this is not the way Jesus would advise leaders to be, but because of the situation, I feel like I have to enter this arena uh, and kind of like become a fool to like rescue fools. <laughs> so, um, so he says, in this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. But since many are boasting in the way the world does, in other words, these new leaders, I too will boast. He says, you know what? You gladly put up fool with fools because you're so wise. <laughs> so Paul is, remember last week I mentioned that Paul has the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And we're seeing it come out uh, here, uh, you know, loud and clear. That what he's basically saying is, is if you study First and Second Corinthians, like these people, they, they, one of their issues is pride. They see themselves as very wise people. The reality is, if you were so wise, you would realize these new teachers are not like Jesus at all. You wouldn't be following them. He wouldn't have to be writing this. So the very fact that you think they're wise shows you're a fool and you're putting up with fools. And so he's uh, being a little bit sarcastic. He says, in fact, this says, in fact, it's crazy, you'll put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. Uh, you know, you'll just, he says, and to my shame, I admit, wow, we were too weak for that. So catch this, remember in, in Corinth, there are, there's a certain group there that are uh, attacking Paul because they, they feel like he's a weak leader. And you may remember this from a couple weeks ago. 
Remember there was this, uh, there was this major crisis in Corinth where this rogue leader had risen up, challenged Paul's leadership, and was taking the church off track. And Paul went to visit them, and instead of dealing with it directly with kind of harsh confrontation, since the whole church was gathering around supporting this leader, he felt like if he stepped in and confronted him directly, it would tear the church apart. So really, out of love for them and in humility, he retreated quietly, sailed back to Ephesus, wrote them a very strong letter to get them back on track, and that letter worked. But there were many in Corinth who were saying, hey, see what a weak leader he is. He won't really tackle things. He'll write a tough letter, but he won't really uh, tackle things in person. He's weak. And so Paul says, wow, you know, you are so wise there. You'll put up with these new leaders. They come and they exploit you. Uh, They take advantage of you. They slap you around. You go, hey, there's a real leader. And this is what we're going to see today. The problem is, there's, there's a problem in, in Corinth. They still think more like the culture than Christ. And so in the ancient world, and we'll explore this more later, but in the ancient world, if you wanted to be a leader, leader you'd be big, you'd be bold, you'd self-promote, and you'd be really attack your opponents. And so when they saw these new leaders coming in, acting like, the, uh, like their culture, it's like, hey, there's a real leader. That's what a real leader, you know, Paul, he was kind of weak, and so... That's the dynamic of what's going on. He says uh, in verse 21, full of irony, sarcasm, hey, to my shame, I admit we were too weak for that. We were too weak to slap you in the face. Now he says, now, whatever anyone else dares to boast about. So now he's heading in this fool's speech comparing his resume with theirs. He says, whatever they, he says, I'm speaking like a fool. It's just really even hard for him to talk like this. It's just, it's just so awkward. Uh, He says, I also dare to boast about. So he's going to compare resumes. First item on the resume is their national heritage. What we're going to learn is these new teachers were Jewish. We don't know exactly what they were teaching. I mean, Paul describes it as a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. But he doesn't really explain what he means by that. But what we're going to learn is they're definitely Jewish, and they were taking a lot of pride in that heritage, and so their message was probably coming uh, out of Jewish roots. And so he's going to say, hey, when it comes to being Jews, like, I'm the Jew's Jew, right? So we know this from Philippians chapter 3, you know, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, uh, 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 zealous for the law. He's got a great heritage, if that's what you want to compare And so he says uh, in verse 22, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Messiah? Remember, Christ means Messiah. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. (laughs) And now he's going to begin to go, go on to the resume to what he suffered for Jesus and how he's worked hard for Jesus. So he said, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. So when the Jewish courts would uh, discipline a prisoner or punish someone for blasphemy or whatever, that they would, uh, they would whip them. And the, these, court, they, these whips would have, you know, three leather strands that they would whip them. And the theory was 40 would kill you. So the law was 40 minus 1, 39. So five times Paul had been whipped like that. Now that's easy to go over quickly, but I want you to think about this. Paul has been a believer for less than 20 years at this point in his life. And five times 
he's been whipped uh, essentially 40 lashes, you know, 40 times with three lashes. That's like, uh, that's like 600 pieces of leather hitting you, right? Okay, three times 40 times five. And so uh, his back, if he were to take his shirt off, I'm sure that his back would just be a mass of scars. Uh, I was watching a, a show the other day where this person had been kind of whipped uh, terribly uh, twice as much as normal by the Romans, and then they would show his back, so as we take off his shirt, it was just like uh, full of just scars and, and, you know, just scar tissue. This would be Paul, you know, Paul would be this on steroids. Imagine 600, you know, le- leather, uh, you know, uh, lashes cutting into you and then healing time after time again. And so, in fact, in the book of Galatians, he says, let no one give me any more trouble for being an apostle of Jesus. He says, because my very body bears the marks of Jesus, right? So he is beginning to talk about his suffering. Very awkward for him to do this. Like he's not the sort of guy, oh, I've suffered. Let me show you my back. He really is just doing this because he loves these people and he doesn't know what else to do. These guys are, hey, we're amazing. We've done this. We've done this. And he's like, I don't know what to do. It's like, I've got to become a fool to rescue fools. I don't know what else to do. And so he says, uh, verse 25, three times I was beaten by rods. Now, this is how the Romans would punish you. In fact, you may remember in Acts 16 where Paul was arrested in Philippi and beaten. He was beaten with rods. And he says, once I was pouted with stones. Uh, in other words, he was stoned. And that is, that we, we know about this incident in Acts 14 where he was in Lystra sharing the message of Jesus and he was stoned and it was so bad they left him for dead. They, the city left, they thought he was dead and then he uh, got up. Whether it was supernatural or not, we don't know, but he got up. So we know about that time. Then this is crazy. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. Now what's crazy about this is that we know about one time in his life when he was shipwrecked when he was on his journey to Rome as a prisoner in Acts, in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, But that was after he wrote this letter. So that means that four times he's been shipwrecked. We only know one. And it's a great reminder of how little we actually know of his life and his suffering. Um, And he said, one night I spent a night and day in the open sea. So after being shipwrecked, apparently he's just sort of, you know, treading water for 24 hours, uh, maybe holding on a plank or something, but uh, eventually rescued. So I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. Basically, I live my life in danger. (laughs) 27, so I've labored. Now he's moving on from the danger just to the hardship and the the suffering and how hard he's worked. I've labored, I've toiled, I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And then besides everything else, there's the emotional strain I face daily, the pressure of my concern for all the churches, you know, like you losers, Corinthians. (laughs) Um, So who is weak and I do not feel weak? Uh, Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn, which is a, a way of saying uh, being ang- who, you know, like angry uh, for someone leading you into sin. And now he's going to switch gears. And so I want you to think, think of this like an analogy, like a metaphor. These, uh, these false leaders and the churches, they're on the highway of pride, all right? They're traveling the highway of pride. 
And Paul wants to rescue them, and so he's like, I don't know what else to do. That's where they're traveling, I have to go there. So he merges onto the highway of pride, and he starts boasting and promoting, telling his story, but he, wanted to get, he wants to get off that road. That's the wrong path. He wants to get off that road, and so now he's gonna begin to take a left turn and exit off and start exiting toward the highway of humility and in hopes of taking them with him. And so his next category on resume, he's compared heritage, he's compared suffering, he's compared working hard. Now he's, he brings up this new category, a category that these new leaders, they would never boast about this. He says, I wanna boast about my weakness. Now again, they've gotta be going, what? Like no one boasts about weakness, especially in the first century, as we'll see later. And so, but he wants to kind of begin moving in the way because what we've seen all through the letter of uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're gonna see it uh, next week in, in highlighted, is that God often does some of his best work in our life in times of weakness and hardship and failure. And so Paul has learned that it's through hardship and weakness and failure, it's often then that the power of God is most released in our life and through our life. He's been telling us the whole letter. Next week, he's gonna tell us how he learned that lesson. But he's kind of inching up to it now. He says, let me tell you about my weaknesses. Um, and he's gonna start off with a very humiliating thing. Now, we forget this. But Paul was a very upright, a righteous man, a law-abiding man, and yet he's often treated like a common criminal. So we, like, how would that feel to you if like, because of your stance for Jesus, you're thrown in prison and thrown in with common criminals because you just believe in Jesus? We forget what that's like to be treated like a criminal just because you're doing the right thing. And so for Paul, this was his life. And so he says, let me tell you about a time. He says, this story is so crazy. I swear to God, it's the truth. <laughs> and he said, but very early in my life, and he tells a story when he was in the city of Damascus, and he was sharing Jesus there. It happened very early in his, in his, uh, his after his conversion. We know that because he mentions the king who is in charge, and that king we know from secular history when he reigned. And so uh, he said, I was in Damascus, and there was a search warrant. Uh, there was a warrant for my arrest issued, and they were watching all the gates, you know, the huge city of Damascus, the huge, massive walls, and they were watching for me, and so I had to escape like a criminal. And he said, I, I promise you, I swear before God, that they put me in a basket, and they lowered me down from a, a, a house in the massive wall from the window, and that's how I had to escape, as if I was a common criminal. And so he says in verse uh, 30, so if I must boast, I, if I must boast, I'll boast about the things that show my weakness. Again, weird, but uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, he knows I'm not lying. Like, I know this is crazy, but I'm telling you the truth. And in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I, I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall, and I slipped through his hands, the great escape. <laughs> so, 
We're going to stop there. This full speech goes on to chapter 12 and verse 10. We'll pick it up at the beginning of chapter 12 next week. So he has one more category that he wants to share with them as he's merging off the highway of pride onto the highway of humility. He started that move about weakness, but there's one more amazing event. So the last category that he's going to compare on his resume is supernatural visions and revelations from the Lord. There's crazy supernatural experiences. The new teachers were big on this apparently, so he's gonna share his. But the one he is going to share is how he learned that God's power is released through our weakness, right? So we'll come back to that next week. But for today, I wanna talk about this topic of boasting uh, and this topic of humility. And, and, uh, and what I want to look at is this whole series is about the role that truth plays in our transformation. If we want to be transformed, that we need to be, uh, we need to renew our minds. And so uh, what I want to do today is talk about that topic, uh, but focusing specifically on this issue of pride versus humility and how the path of humility leads to freedom, the path of pride leads to, to, uh, to bondage. And so there on your note sheet, you have a section that's called Metamorphosis, the Path of Humility. So let's jump in. Three big picture principles. Number one, uh, the first thing we have to understand, if we're going to understand this passage and the lessons Paul's teaching, is that boasting was big in Corinth. If we could go back in time, we walk the streets of Corinth, what we discover is that boasting, self-promotion, um, uh, kind of putting yourself forward, bragging about who you are, what you've done, what your accomplishments, what family you're from, that boasting was big in Corinth. In fact, it wasn't just big in Corinth, it was big in the ancient world. Now, here in our country, in our culture, we still have a high value of humil on humility. Uh, this is rapidly eroding as we are moving away from Jesus and his value system as a culture. Uh, you know, when Jesus came, he initiated a humility revolution that's influenced all of Western culture. We'll talk more about that later. So we're moving away from that. You see us moving away, for example, in the realm of athletics or politics. I'm the greatest. I'm the boss. Tear down my enemy. Very much like a Roman sport. Um, so we're moving away from that. But still today, in our culture today, we have a high value on humility. Like, for example, if you go to a family gathering, uh, like an extended family gathering, and you have one relative who's always bragging, always boasting, always telling you how good he is or how gifted she is, how the, their, her team is lucky to have them, how she's the best kid in the family. Uh, if you have a boss who's always taking the credit for everything, every success of the team or anyone associated with him. He just takes the credit. You know, like, I'm such an amazing leader, and that's why this team thrives. And without me, they'd be nothing. If you're on a sports team that's like that, you know, uh, that, you know someone says, like, I'm the best player on this team. In our culture today, we still find that annoying, Right? Like you, don't, like, you don't say to that relative, that's really awesome. They just have such a positive self-image. <laughs> like, like, they're just annoying. Like, you're like I don't want to go and hear him bragging about himself and how he's the best. And it's just so irritating, right? What I want you to catch is in that aspect, that's very different from culture in the first century. In the first century, 
Most of the cultures in the Roman Empire were what we call honor and shame cultures. And in an honor and shame culture, the top value, your top goal is to attain honor for yourself and your family. And your biggest fear of failure is that you would ever be dishonored. You bring shame on your family. And so because it was an honor and shame culture, your, your, kind of your strategy was to achieve as much honor for yourself by self-promoting yourself, what you've done, your accomplishments, uh, and kind of tooting your own horn. And so especially if you're a leader, this was considered normal. Like I've spent a lot of time reading Roman history, and it just is always amazing to me um, this is how common this was for someone, for example, maybe a rich aristocrat to build a new building for the community and then to put up the plaque how through my generosity and the greatness of my family and blah, 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 something that we would find kind of really like very inappropriate, but this was common in the ancient world, whether it was Greece or Rome or uh, Egypt or Israel. And so uh, this has been, uh, this issue is especially a big issue in Corinth. Like, I don't know if you've paid attention or noticed how many times the word boasting comes up in this letter. Uh, it's just come up over and over again. You know, Paul's saying, I'm not boasting, I'm not boasting, this is my, like, it comes up over and over but it really comes to a head here in the final chapters because of this issue of these new leaders coming in and promoting themselves and attacking Paul. Like, let me just give you, uh, this may be helpful. Uh, the Greek word for boasting, you don't need to write it down or remember, but the Greek word for boasting is kakaamai. And, and in the New Testament, the entire New Testament, that word is used 37 times, right? 26 of those times are in 1st or 2nd Corinthians. And 20 of those times are in 2nd Corinthians. 20 out of 37 times. Like over half, half the use of the word boasting is in this one letter. This is a major issue in Corinth. And so what, what you have going on here is that as followers of Jesus... When these new leaders come in, self-promoting, boasting, bragging, cutting down Paul, that should have been a hot tip. They're probably not from Jesus, because Jesus is not like that. But instead, the problem was the Corinthians, as we've seen throughout this letter, they think more like their culture than like Christ. And so when these new leaders come in, bossing them around, bragging, boasting, all our achievements, all our gifts, we're so cool, we're amazing, we're spiritual, you should be following, who are you following him? That guy's crazy. And they even start abusing them, taking advantage of them, uh, putting on airs, slapping them in the face, boss them, kicking them around. The Corinthians are like, hey, we finally have some real leaders around this place. Because this is what they were used to. So what we're seeing in Corinth in this letter is a clash of cultures. The culture of Corinth versus the culture of the kingdom. And what I want you to catch is the reason they were not being transformed is because they, are, they were not thinking, their, their minds were not being renewed. They're not thinking like, like uh, Jesus. They're thinking like their culture. And that leads to number two. So if if boasting is big in Corinth, humility is big in the kingdom. 
So I want you to catch this. Not only was boasting big in the ancient world and in Corinth, but humility in the ancient world, this is sort of a shocker here, but humility was seen as a weakness. Now this is very foreign to us, and the reason is because, like I said, Jesus initiated initiated a, 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 a humility revolution in the human race. The reason you and I feel the same the way we do today about someone with a big hat always is because of Jesus. That prior to Jesus, historically, humility was not valued. Because of Jesus and then the influence of Christianity, that changed. And we are still in Western culture reaping the benefits of that today. Those benefits are rapidly going away as we reject Jesus and Christianity, and we are embracing new worldviews, that what you see is the culture of Rome is returning, this, this culture of, uh, of self-promotion. So in the ancient world, catch this, you would never serve someone lower than yourself in rank. That would be to dishonor yourself and dishonor your family, um, and so you, you don't, like serving others was not a value. What was value was honoring yourself. And so, of course, Jesus challenges this, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, uh, when we um, started the day, we started the day with a story, right? We started the day with a story of this uh, leader and his team who are trying to travel sort of incognito. It's difficult because he's become very famous, even infamous, um, and he shares with his team that they're heading into an era of danger, but his team doesn't really want to listen. They don't want to hear them. And so uh, they, they're, as they're, they're approaching their home base. They've been out for a long time. Uh, he can sense conflict brewing and arguments brewing. And so he feels like we need to move towards this. And so they have this meeting, this kind of team meeting. So this is an event from the life of Jesus. And so let me, let me set it up. In Mark chapter 9, we're told that towards the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, so it's probably in the last six months of his ministry, that uh, he begins to share with his team that he is going to be arrested and then executed and then rise in three days. Now, when he shares this, they have no idea what he's talking about. Jesus would often say things that are, their minds were really weird and hard to understand, and so they just wrote it off. In their mind, no, no, here's what's happening. We are soon going to be going to Jerusalem, and Jesus is eventually going to unleash his power, the power that stops the waves and the winds, the power to heal the sick, raise the dead. He's going to unleash that power on Rome, and we're going to take over, and the kingdom of God's going to come in. And so we're going to be like his top cabinet members. Like that's what is their mind. So he's telling them, but they're not getting this. And so after he tells them, he's kind of, he realizes danger is increasing. His life is increasingly in danger. So we're told in Mark 9 that they are kind of traveling incognito throughout the Galilee, northern Israel, until they get back to Capernaum, which is their home base. So for those of you who've been to Israel, remember Capernaum, the synagogue there, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, this is his home base. So they get back there, and on the way, as they're coming into town, he has heard them arguing. And so he wants to have a team meeting. So he is going to have this team meeting, call a team meeting, and when they get together, he's going to ask them what you were arguing about earlier today. 
And what I want you to catch, this is going to give us an amazing window into the culture of the first century. Like we read it as 21st century people, so we miss it. We need to take some filters off and we need to read it through the, the, the honor and shame culture of the first century. And so he says, what were you arguing about on the way? And they don't want to tell him because they know this is not really going to go well. Um, it, I think that they, here's how they feel like. I think they feel like, uh, yeah, we need to have this argument because this is important stuff, but Jesus, he'll never get it. And he won't really approve. You know, so let's just keep it among ourselves, boys. And, uh, and then we'll figure this thing out. And uh, just keep him in the dark. That's just fine, you know, because you know how he is. And, um, and he's just sort of different sometimes. So um, he won't understand the need for this conversation. And so let's just kind of work it out amongst ourselves. And then we can present it to him later and it'll probably go well. And so he says, so what were you talking about? They don't want to tell him. And so here's their answer. Okay, well, we were talking about which of us is the greatest. <laughs> now, what's funny is in our culture today, we, we laugh because that seems so stupid, right? It seems like, like we would never do this. Like, can you imagine... Uh, can, can you imagine uh, a baseball team, a law, a practice, uh, a, a group of teachers at an elementary school? They're in the lunchroom, and they're discussing, uh, they're, this is their lunchroom discussion. Hey, guys, I think we just need to figure out which is the greatest teacher around here. Personally, I think it's me, um, but I would just like to, you know, and here's why. I've got my, uh, this degree, I've been a master's saying, I've been teaching for 15 years, I got uh, teacher of the year three times, and, uh, and I pretty much think I'm better than all of you. And uh, another teacher says, no, 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 I'm, I'm really the best. I, I, I'm actually the best. You know what, you know what your, your students say about you behind your back? Like, you think you're big stuff, no one likes you. Like, the reality, they like me, and like, can you imagine that conversation happening in a lunchroom of one of our schools? Like, no, you say, yes, oh, wow. Well, we are going downhill faster than I thought. I was going to say no, like, we might think that, but we would not say that. And if we said anything that was like that, and someone said, what, do you think, like, you're the best around here? We would quickly go, oh, no, no, you misunderstood me. I just said we're all amazing, right? Like, we're all teachers of the month. You know what I'm saying. Uh, so in our culture, we wouldn't have that conversation in most situations because it would be seen as really proud, as really arrogant, as like, whoa, aren't you think you're special, right? So we still live in a culture that values humility. And so even if we think it, we would not say it. But what I want you to catch is they didn't live in our culture. And they were super comfortable having this conversation. And they felt like the conversation was very uh, needed. I think in their mind, they're thinking, we're eventually going to Jerusalem. We need to get the cabinet figured out. We, we've got this new administration coming. We know who's going to be king. That's Jesus. But, you know, who's going to be right hand? Who's going to be left hand? Who's going to be secretary of state? Who's going to be defense minister? Right? 
Uh, who's going to be over Homeland Security? Like, we need to figure this thing out. And I think I should be number two. I think I need to be VP because, you know, I mean, after all, it's got to be either Peter, James, or John. It's one of us. We're the three. He always likes us best. You all know that. <laughs> hey, remember when he healed that girl? He didn't even let you guys in. He just took us in, right? <laughs> hey, don't forget, we went over the mountain. You didn't just see him glowing like a worm. You didn't see that. I mean, it was like... Remember when he lit up like a Christmas tree? We got to see that. And uh, you guys, you didn't get to see that. So I think obviously it has to be one of us three. And of the three, I think I'm the best. I think. So they feel very comfortable having that conversation. And the reason is, is because that was the value of their culture. Right? And so in that context, Jesus says, time out. We've got a clash of cultures here. We need to have a meeting, and we need to talk about what's valued in my kingdom. And it's in that context that Jesus says in chapter 9 and verse 35 on your note sheet, sitting down, which uh, don't miss this, to sit down was the, the position a rabbi would take when he was teaching. So sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, anyone who wants to be first, hey, you want to be first, you want to be the greatest, must be the very what? Last. And the servant of all, right? So Jesus says, hey, you want to be great? That's, that's awesome, you know? You have high, high standards, right? He says, but let me tell you, the path to greatness does not lead through the door of self-promotion and self-seeking. The path to greatness in my kingdom leads through the door of humility and service. The one who serves others the most, thinks about themselves the least. That person is the greatest. And then of course, Jesus went out and lived that life, not just gave that message. You think of him washing feet and now you understand why Peter almost had a heart attack. You can't wash my feet. Like this is inappropriate. For you to lower yourself and wash my feet and take on the place of a slave, that's dishonoring to you. You, you cannot do that. But Jesus was doing that as a symbol of the ultimate service which he was gonna do, provide the next day of actually dying a criminal's death so that they could be rescued. And so Jesus introduces this whole new model of path to greatness and what true greatness is about. And the problem in Corinth is they're still thinking more like Corinth than like Christ. And so as an end result, when Paul acts like Jesus, they can't even recognize it. They are so, they're so far out there like their culture. When Paul comes and serves them like Jesus served us, they can't even recognize it. Instead, they're drawn to these other leaders who are much like the disciples. I'm the greatest. I'm number one. This is how leadership works. Now, number three, and this is Peter. This is where we're heading with the whole, the whole message, is that humility is the path to freedom. If you want to grow, if you want to be transformed, remember what Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free, free right? So it wasn't really fair, was it? I asked you a question while you're writing, but I, anyway... <laughs> Uh, but you are so good. Uh, yeah, you will know the truth. The truth is the same. So if, if, uh, if we want to be transformed, if we want to be, uh, become the people created to be, if we want to be transformed, be like Jesus, if we want freedom, 
that what Jesus is saying is it's, it's not pride that leads you there, it's humility. That humility is the path to freedom. Now, I want you to think about this. Core concept of this whole series is there is a powerful relationship between truth and transformation. We saw it in Romans 12. If you be, you be transformed by the renewing of your mind, if you want to experience God's will in your life. We see it with Jesus. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what we're learning today is that if we want to be transformed, if we want to become like Jesus, that we have to embrace the truth about ourselves which leads to humility, which in turn sets us free to truly love God and love people and be the people that we were created to be. Now, for this to work though, for humility to lead to freedom, we have to understand what true humility looks like as opposed to false humility, right? So let's just talk briefly about that. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes that we have a wrong view of what true humility looks like. Like sometimes, we think that true humility is false modesty. Right? Like sometimes we think that to be truly humble is to pretend you're really bad at something when you're actually good at it. Right? So for example, if you come, like you expect your pastor to be humble, it's a fair, fair uh, expectation. But um, <laughs> like you, you, you know, so you expect your pastor to be humble, so you come up and you say to me, that was an amazing message, it really spoke to me, God used it in my life that um, we often think that true humility is like something like, um, oh, it was nothing, it was Jesus, it wasn't me. <laughs> and in Christian circles, that's what we think, like that's humility. Or we think it's like this, that really, I thought that was a horrible message, but isn't it amazing that what God can do with nothing? God can, <laughs> use, God can take a horrible message and even use something horrible to make something beautiful. He makes beautiful things out of ashes, you know? And, uh, and so I think, I, I just not very gifted. I just do the best I can. I wish someone else was up here, but praise God he can turn, you know, coal into diamonds, right? And so, you know, like, whoa, we've got a humble pastor. You know, it's like, so we often think of humility, that humility is about false modesty. Sometimes we think that humility is about having a low self-image. So in other words, that if you, if you like, oh, I'm no good at anything, I've never been good at that, I don't even know why I try, I always fail. Like, wow, you are so humble. <laughs> so here's why I didn't catch it. True humility is not false modesty, and it's not a low self-image. Image. That true humility flows from an accurate view of who you are. True humility is having an accurate view of who you are. And so the true humility is having an accurate view of who God is, who you are, and how your relationship works. True humility is having an accurate view of yourself, catch this, complete with your strengths, weaknesses, and limitations. And that the more we see the truth about ourselves, the more it just naturally leads to a beautiful humility that sets us free. So let me give you like three truths, just three, three examples of three truths about you and me that um, the first two are kind of depressing, but hang in there. Uh, 
the first truth about you and I, it doesn't need to be depressing, but we often see it that way, is that you and I are created beings, right? Like we're not self-sustaining beings. We're created beings and we're completely dependent on God for all that's good in life. It's just the truth of it. It's like we were created like to be, like to be sailboats, not rowboats. And we're completely dependent on the wind to work. That's just the truth about us. So the truth about us, like the next time you're getting a big head, try fasting for a week. And we just went through this whole all church fast, right? And one of the things that fasting does is it reminds you that you're a creature. It reminds you how vulnerable you are. You can feel so big and so powerful and so confident and I can do anything. Try going without food for a few days. And all of a sudden you realize like how vulnerable we are. He feels so big and so strong. Try holding your breath for a minute. <laughs> try, uh, try this one. Just go without water for 24 hours. See how you're feeling. Like the reality is we're created beings and we're dependent on God for everything. We're like the sailboats. We're dependent on him for the wind. Without it, we don't move. And this is just the truth of life. It's, it's a truth about who we are. And so when we begin, when we start to forget how big God is or how dependent we are, pride, pride rises. It's just that pride is stupid. It's a lack of reality. All pride is based on deception of the truth. And so I love what Daniel said in his comment when he confronted King Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, who is starting to get a super big head. He says, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven you did not honor the God, catch this, who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Men and women, it's like every one of us, God holds our life and all our ways in his hand. And all he has to do is snap his finger and we die. It's like we are dependent on him, we're designed that way. And there's a, a beauty there that we're designed to be, that sailboat that receives his wind and sails. It's how we're designed, all right? Number two, the second truth that it's so important for us to, to uh, get clear on is that we are fallen creatures. Uh, in other words, there's something desperately wrong with our race and us, have you noticed that? Like there's something broken about us. Like we, we've rebelled against the creator, which is the source of all life. And as a result, we became a race mired in death, death at every level. And so we all experience this. We all have this rebel, rebel uh, heart inside of us. We all tend to want to make ourselves the center of the universe. We all want to be our own God. We, we live with this magnetic pull towards the dark side, right? Towards that which is evil, destructive, self-absorbed. And we all have it. And the more you try to grow and change, the more you get in touch with that. That apart from Jesus, apart from the work of his spirit in our life, we're a fallen race. In fact, in Romans chapter one, or Romans three rather, Paul quoting from Psalm 14 says, as it is written, he says, this is summary of the human race. There is no one righteous, not even one. 
And later on in chapter 7, he talks about his own uh, kind of path of trying to grow and change himself apart from Jesus. And he says, for I know that, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. He said, because I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. So not only is a fallen race under judgment for our rebellion against the king, but we are broken and with this magnetic pull to the dark side. And even though without, you know, apart from Jesus, apart from his spirit, we try to change ourselves, we really can't change that at a core level. Like we are broken. We are fallen. Those are the first two truths. Here's the third truth. The third truth is that we are deeply loved and gifted. That in spite of those first two, the good news of the gospel is that God did not reject us. He didn't uh, hand us over to our judgment, that he came after us. And in spite of being the broken race, he's pursued us in Christ. And so what we learn is that as followers of Jesus, we come to him according to Ephesians chapter one. Here's what we know, that when we come to Jesus, we find out that, that actually we have been chosen before time to be rescued, that we have not only been forgiven, but we have been adopted into his family, that he loves us dearly as he loves his own son, and because of that, he sent the spirit of his son inside of us to change us and give us the power to grow and change and be transformed to be the people we're created to be. And on top of that, each of us is uniquely gifted by his spirit to come alongside of him and to work under his leadership to help heal and restore all of creation so we can live with him forever in this community of love for God and love for one another. This is the truth. It's the truth about us. And it's as we embrace this truth that we're set free. When you know that you are deeply loved, when you know that you're chosen before time, when you know that you are uniquely gifted, when you know you have the Holy Spirit who leads you and guides you and empower you, that there's not the need for self-promotion anymore. The, the more we know we're deeply loved, we don't need to promote ourselves to gain our worth from outside approval. Like we, we don't need to compete with each other and tear each other down in order to put ourselves up because we know we're all uniquely chosen and gifted to do something great and I don't have to make myself great by tearing you down. And so for the first time in my life, I'm set free. I'm set free from having to promote myself, brag about myself, put myself forward because I know there's a God, he loves me, he's got a plan for me, and for the first time in my life, I'm set free to love God and love people and not be in bondage to living to impress other people. And therein, there is freedom. And it's a freedom that only humility can bring. And this is the freedom that Paul had discovered in his life, and that's why it's so awkward for him to boast about himself. He said, if I wanna boast, I don't wanna boast about myself. I wanna boast about Jesus and what Jesus has done in me and through me. He's captured my heart. In fact, at the end of chapter 10, right before he went to this fool's chapter, he ended chapter 10 by saying there in your note sheet, 
<coughs> quoting, he quotes from Jeremiah 9, which is one of his favorite passages for his life. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And you start and think about this. Think what he says in Galatians in chapter six. He says, hey, let, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus through which the world is crucified to me and its opinions and I'm crucified to the world. I'm set free. I'm dead to that world. I just want to boast in Jesus and his cross. You think what he says in Ephesians chapter two, when he says we've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. That as followers of Jesus, we're set free from this life of trying to gain our meaning and identity from what others think of us. And now we're set free to truly love God and love people the way we're designed to be. You see, humility in one sense is not just one of the virtues, it is the foundation for all of them. Because in humility, we come back to our place as creature, we come back to our place of sailboat, we come back to a place where we realize that all we are, all we have is a gift. It, it allows us to release faith and trust in our life for God to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. It releases the power of the Spirit. Without humility, we cannot have transformation. In many, in many ways, humility is the ground floor, the foundation of all transformation. In fact, I love what Andrew Murray, famous pastor from the 1800s, famous author, wrote. He says, humility is the place of entire dependence on God, and it's from the very nature of things, the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature. And it's because it's the root of every virtue. And so pride, or loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. Without this, there can be no true abiding in God's presence. Without humility, we can't really abide in God's presence. We can't experience his favor, the power of his spirit. Without humility, there's no abiding faith or love or joy or strength. Humility is the only soil in which the graces root. And the lack of humility is a sufficient explanation for every defect and failure. Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others, it is the root of all because it alone has the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. Humility is what puts us in the right place with our creator, creator and creature, where we're able to receive the wind of his spirit and kind of hoist our sail and sail into the future to have the power, the ability, the great to use the gifts he's given us uh, to carry out his mission for our life. And without humility, it's like we're stuck in a rowboat, convincing ourselves of what a great rower we are. <laughs> but you know, if the task is to it's like sail from England to the United States, I mean, how much is a rowboat really gonna get you there? And it's like, I don't care how great a rower you are, you don't have what it takes. And so we were created to sail into our future by the wind of the Spirit, and that only comes with humility. And that's why, just a kind of a spoiler for next week, that's why, the, that's why weakness in the hard times lead to power, because they bring us to a place of humility where once again we can trust God to be God, and we can stop trying to be God in our own lives. Amen? All right, so this leads to, this leads to one important question there. 
uh, transformed by truth, the key question. So that, here's the question I'd like you to ponder. And it goes like this, which path are you pursuing? So we've seen two paths today. We've seen the path of pride, the path of self-promotion, the, the path of self-seeking to elevate yourself. And we've seen the path of Jesus, the path of humility, the path of service, the path of putting others first, of, um, of not living for self-promotion. And the question is, which path are you pursuing? And, and this is one area where I think as a culture, we are becoming much more like Corinth and much like Christ, uh, much less like Christ all the time. I want you to think of this. We live in a culture that's becoming increasingly narcissistic. That increasingly, it's in the path to life as to look out for number one. Man, you see this in our social media, don't you? Like social media, so much of the time, not always, but so much of the time, is it not about self-promotion? Like, look how cool I am. Here's I'm at the beach. Here's I'm at working out. Look how hard I'm working out. Uh, here's where I am here. Look at this. Look at this new car I got. Look at this thing. Like, aren't I amazing? Right? That in our culture today, you see this in social media where so much of, that, uh, of our life is about self-promoting and image management, about creating this image that everyone wishes to be us because our life is so cool. I mean, the reality is, it's not really like that, you know? When was the last time on social media, was, hey, here's a picture, I look horrible today, just thought I'd share it with you, <laughs> you know? Uh, here's what my house looks like after breakfast, whoa, not sure how I'm gonna make it through the day. <laughs> I, look at my husband, can you believe this guy? <laughs> we just had a terrible argument, you can tell, look at the look on his face. Like, we don't boast about our weaknesses. And here's the thing, increasingly as a culture, and let me tell you, the, the younger you are, the more true this is. As a culture, we are basing our identity on how many likes we get on Instagram. Our whole sense of identity is about, hey, how many people liked me? And what can I do to get more followers? And the more followers I get, and the more I'm liked, then the more I feel good about myself. Can I tell you, if you go down to like a middle school level, this is a huge trouble. This is a huge problem right now. The kids are like so depressed because they're not getting liked. What was happening is we're, we're turning into a culture, we're basing our value increasingly on what other people think about us. And this is the path to bondage. Can I tell you, self-promotion is an addiction. And the more we self-promote, the more addicted we get to the approval of others. And Jesus has come to set us free. And to say, you are valuable and you are loved and you are gifted. It's not about what everyone else thinks about you. It's about what I've done and who I've created you to be. And so I want you to set you free to live not for the approval of others, but for the audience of one. And so the question is, in your life, which path are you on? Is it the path of self-promotion or the path of service to others? 
You know, there in your note sheet, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others as above yourselves. Think how revolutionary those words were in first century honor society. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who lived to serve us. And so which path are you pursuing? The path of self-promotion or the path of service? The path of service will set you free. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this powerful passage and the principles that it it holds for us about um, these two different paths. And we pray, Lord, that today you would help us to embrace this and to be set free increasingly from this path of self-promotion and into the path of service for others and drawing our identity from you and not from the approval of others. We pray that you would set us free, you transform our minds, teach us how to think like you think, that we could be truly great in your kingdom and that we could embrace this concept that the path to greatness leads through the door of humility. We pray now as we bring you our offering, our gifts, as we worship, we pray you'd meet us now and write these truths on our heart. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Let's stand together.